0: Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode three, Writing for a Living. Thanks for joining me again this week. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you know this is a show that focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida and both the state and federal courts. Each week, we'll be talking about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. My first guest this week is a leader in Florida's appellate community, Sarah Lalu Amin. Sarah is a shareholder in the Tampa office of banker Lopez Gassler and a board-certified appellate specialist. Currently, she's the chair of the Florida Bar's appellate practice section. Sarah is a consummate professional. She's well-respected across the state for her leadership and her service to the appellate community. My interview with Sarah is coming up next. Sarah, thanks for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast.
1: Thank you, Dwayne.
0: So now, you are a board-certified appellate lawyer, but what are your primary areas of appellate practice?
1: I practice in all types of civil appeals. Um, I've done some other types of appeals as well. I, I think us appellate lawyers, we tend to be generalists, and, and we get the opportunity to get into a lot of different areas of law because it's the it's the process that we specialize in. And so I, I've definitely been an example of that.
0: Definitely. Now, you and I have worked together closely for a few years in the appellate practice section, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the appellate practice section and your involvement there. Um, first, let me ask you, do you remember how you first got involved?
1: I do. I do.
0: Tell me that story.
1: Sure. I was... Very lucky. I um, started practicing, started my appellate practice working with some wonderful people um, who got me involved right away. And that was such a lucky thing for me because I found such a wonderful community in the appellate practice section. And I think it really made the difference of me having a career that I enjoyed and could grow in and really like doing that. So... I've been really lucky in getting started from the get-go. Early on, I got involved in the section's pro bono committee and worked with the chair of that committee and ultimately took over as chair of that committee and got to do that for several years until they finally told me I I should try something else and move up kind of into an officer position. But I just loved doing that so much, and um, there were some great people that were kind of waiting in line, and so we finally passed the torch and and let them take on, and, and they've done a fantastic job. But that was a place for me where I really got to see the benefits of bar experience because in bar work, it's voluntary, And so if you're willing to put in the work, you can kind of make it what you want. And that's the part that's been so enjoyable for me because you get to be yourself. You get to do something in a way that is unique to you and is unique to a problem that you see and a potential solution that you see and craft programs that way and work with great people doing it. And so that's that's something I really enjoyed through the pro bono committee.
0: Yeah, that's how I first remember you coming to my attention as doing all the pro bono work. And, and of course, I know you, you would be too humble to mention it, but you actually received the section's pro bono award. It's an award we give out to one person uh, each year, and that was way back in 2012. Can you believe it's been that long?
1: I cannot believe it has been that long. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, I, I was a pretty young lawyer at the time and jack mentioning that when he gave me that award and um you know it was such an honor and i have enjoyed um participating in that process of identifying those who have given back so much and just had that spirit of service um to our community and do that through appellate practice it's such a win-win for lawyers who get to do what they love and help people and fill an incredible need
0: I think that we will have a an episode of the podcast here coming up soon where we 're going to talk about pro bono and some of the pro bono opportunities that are available, so maybe i 'll get you to weigh in on that too but now you've you 've worked your way through the officer roles there 's sort of a progression in the section, and now you are currently the chair. Uh, you are three quarters done, I think right because the the way the bar works uh, there are the bar year is not the calendar year, so you 're the 2018 2019 chair. So uh, Nick Shanine will take over in July, but you are you're getting close to the end. How how has the experience been for you?
1: It's been incredible. I like I said since the beginning of my career, this has been a part of my life, and to be able to lead this section that has given me so much has been such an incredible honor, and it's been. An incredible experience. We got to plan our first ever trip to Washington, D.C. and create a program there that incorporated things that, um, including things that I really cared about, like pro bono work. We um, rolled out a new pro bono program and uh, had former Stetson professor Michael Allen, now Judge Michael Allen on the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, speak to us about his court. And we learned about a pro bono program that's unique to that court. Um, That was such a special thing to be able to implement that in connection with our D.C. trip and to visit the Supreme Court and to do all these wonderful things with all these wonderful people, including planning for our section's future, which um, has been a lot of fun. We're in full-on implementation mode right now and have a lot of great leaders working on a lot of great things, And so um, any appellate lawyers out there who want to get involved in the section, there's so much opportunity, and we have a lot of identified initiatives. But, again, there's always the opportunity to really make it your own and really do things in a way that are going to be beneficial and enjoyable to you.
0: I can't let you get past the the D.C. retreat without saying what a wonderful experience that was. It was... uh... So great to be, you know, in the Capitol and in uh, the Supreme Court, in the inner sanctum of the Supreme Court where we had a reception there and uh, the, an excellent program. It was just a fantastic – I think uh, the first time the section has ever had a retreat that was out of state, so that was uh, that was very cool. But then to, to go to D.C. where we all have so much connection to and, and have that experience was was fantastic. And that's one of the things, you know, that the section does – uh, each year we either do, at least now, we're currently in the mode where we're either doing a retreat or we're going uh, as guests to the uh, DCA Judges Conference. Both of those are great experiences and great reasons to be involved in the section because they're such uh, not only CLE opportunities but networking opportunities and just um, a fun trip.
1: Yep, and a lot of credit goes to you, Dwayne, for leading us into our first retreat after a long time hiatus in that process. So um, our Key West trip was fantastic and definitely paved the way for D.C.
0: That that was a good trip and, and you know credit just like for you credit for all these things can be spread around but it was great to to have that retreat in Key West and to have our our signature dinner at Mallory Square at Sunset and a little different. D.C. and uh, Key West, very different, but both both pretty exciting in their own way. Yep. So what do you see your role in the appellate practice section going forward? You've, you've got another year after this year as uh, immediate past chair. Uh, what do you see after that?
1: Yep. Immediate past chair, you know, you're still serving in an officer role and providing insight as, as you did in your year when you served in that role. And It's an important one because it allows for continuity. Um, So, after that, I'm going to see what happens. And I'm interested in, um, of course, staying involved with the pro bono committee. Um, staying involved with the section as a whole through EC. Um, through our executive council, all past chairs have the option to be on our executive council and to have that voice, which, again, is really important for continuity purposes, and it's a great way to continue to give back to the section and to offer that knowledge that you know we've had for years and years that's kind of passed down, passed down. So um, I definitely plan on staying involved in that capacity and also in the pro bono committee's ongoing work through my role as well that I serve on the Florida Bar, on the Florida Bar's pro bono committee.
0: It's one interesting thing about the section, and I guess I haven't been nearly as involved in other Florida Bar sections as this one, so I can't say for sure, but one of the things that, that stands out to me is so many of the past chairs of the appellate practice section are still actively involved in the section, I mean, I don't know what we have, say, 30 past chairs, and at any given function, you might see 20 of them. I mean, it's really uh, amazing uh, how much involvement there is and how much that helps because when you, as chair in your position, when you need somebody experienced to head up an ad hoc committee or something, there's almost always a past chair around to, to take charge of that. So it's a very interesting aspect of the section is that people stick around.
1: Yeah, and again, going back to what is so special about this group, that's part of it. It, That's the community. It's that people are around because they enjoy it and because they care. A lot of those people who were past chairs from 10, 15 more years ago who are still involved – They contribute so much, and you can tell that it comes from a place of really caring about where appellate practice in Florida goes, and that's such a special thing that you just don't see everywhere.
0: So now, I suspect that most of the people that listen to this podcast are probably members of the appellate practice section. Uh, That's sort of our target audience, right? Appellate geeks who are interested in these types of, of things, but I have to assume there must be some people out there maybe who are not yet. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, what advice would you have if there's lawyers who are listening that want to get more involved in the section? You know, how, what's the best way to go about doing that? And, and as a side note, I'll say to those lawyers, if you're listening to this podcast, you really need to be involved in the appellate practice section, right? This is right up your alley. But, but if, if there's somebody who's never been uh, to one of our meetings, wants to get involved, what should they do?
1: Well, and I I communicate this a lot. Of course, it's to members of our section a lot of the time, but in any outlet that I can, um, I tell folks who may be interested um, to come to one of our meetings. That's really the best way to start, and we meet at the Florida Bar um, conventions in the winter meeting and um, the June annual meeting. And then in the fall, we have our retreat slash DCA judges conference um, that we attend, and people can join at that time as well. But um, at any time throughout the year, anyone can contact any of us. We're all very approachable. I've tried to maintain that as chair and really reach out to people and let them know that they can reach out to me. And I'm happy to take phone calls, emails, to talk about not just your interest and in you want to get involved, but what is it that you'd like to get involved in and really find the opportunity that's going to be something that you're going to love with people you'd like to work with doing things that are going to benefit your career.
0: Step one is to show up, right? Make a phone call or show up to a meeting. You'll always be invited in. It's a it's a very open group. And show up, uh, volunteer for something, and before you know it, you'll be You'll be one of the regulars, right?
1: Absolutely. That's that's how it works.
0: And I and I think it works that way for most bar activities. as we're we're busy people, we're busy professionals. Everybody has a lot to do. But if you're willing to set aside the time, and and donate it to something like this, uh, people are more than more than happy for the help and to get you involved.
1: Yep. Absolutely.
0: So uh, on a broader topic, uh, let me ask you this: when when was the first time you started describing yourself as an appellate lawyer? At what point in your career?
1: I think I was still in law school. <laughs> <laughs> and and at that point, as, as you know, as most people know, it was, it was kind of a, a twinkle in my eye. Um, but I've always been, I, before I identified myself as an appellate lawyer, all my life, since I was a child, I've identified myself as a writer. And to me, that's what the heart of the practice is, is it's that communication, and and that's by and large through writing, but it's also through oral advocacy um, when we appear for oral argument, and when we appear for other things, too, whether it be hearings, through correspondence, through mediation, we're always communicating.
0: No, I agree with that, and certainly uh, while part of being an appellate lawyer is understanding the rules and the context and, you know, the the strategies of a pellet process and the mindset, a lot of it is really just about being a very good communicator. Do you have specific philosophies or strategies when it comes to a pellet writing?
1: Yeah, I, I really am interested in both the art and the science. And so a lot of those things you mentioned, that's the science of it, right? That's the Parts of it that are somewhat predictable, the rules that we follow and we achieve the desired result of teeing up that motion for hearing properly and and filing that brief properly and and that sort of thing, following the rules for rehearing and things like that. Um, But the art is the really fun part. And the benefit of... Experience and in this role, working with others and learning what others do and gaining from that because you, you need that. Because again, communication is all about your audience and making sure that you're reaching all the members of your audience. And we often have varied audiences, even on a bench of three judges, you can have very different personalities. Uh, people who see things different ways, people who process things different ways, people who maybe even perhaps read things different ways on a computer versus an iPad and things like that. And all of these things we take into into consideration when we do our brief writing and when we present our arguments.
0: Now, I'm going to violate a rule of cross-examination here. I'm going to ask you a question I don't know the answer to. What, uh, What was your undergraduate major?
1: So my undergraduate majors were uh, psychology and mathematics. So that kind of dovetails right into this in terms of the art and the science. So for me, the mathematics background is helpful from the logic perspective and building an argument and also organizing an argument, which I think is incredibly important. Um, But the psychology is really the science of communication, essentially. It's how... People work and help people perceive things, and so that has been incredibly helpful in informing how I approach various arguments, how I approach my opposition, how I approach the court. We're all human, and as much as this sometimes seems like a sterile process, it's really not. There's a human being behind every single aspect of what we do, and that's important to remember. It's important to remember, too, in the interest of professionalism, that when you are attacking an argument, make sure you're attacking the argument and not the other side. That's a huge part of communication is respect. So um, those, those things have been really helpful in informing my practice.
0: So where do you think that your base writing skills came from? I mean, I, people ask me, like, what should I major in if I want to go to law school? What I tell people is, I get excited when I read a resume and I see somebody who's an English major, and it's not the most practical because you don't wind up going to law school. It's probably not the most employable degree, but I love seeing somebody that I know can read something critically, can write critically, you know, can get the mechanics of the writing properly. Because sometimes uh, with associates and stuff in the firm, I see that you know. Maybe writing wasn't their strongest skill going into law school, and so that kind of excites me. But so I find it interesting because you identify as a writer, but yet your your college majors weren't really. You know, I'm sure you do a lot of writing in psychology, but where where do you think the base skills come from? Was it even before that?
1: So, I have always written. I've written all types of all types of things from nonfiction to fiction. And I've, I've never gone the publication route, but maybe one day, um, maybe one day I will. Lord knows I have a lot of things all piled up on computer drives and things like that. Um, but that's always been an interest of mine. So throughout my academic career, I was always drawn to that and always excelled in that. And so um, I, I studied it and did what I could to perfect those skills all throughout my academic career. Um, so, in terms of a major, it wasn't something that I majored in, but it's something that I enjoyed doing um, throughout college as well. Um, I think that the English major is a good recommendation, and, and if not, just really focusing on those skills and building those skills because even though, you know, I spoke of the art and the science. There's a science, and that's in the rule following and the things like that, but there's also a science to writing. And uh, I had a law professor who put it really well, I thought, and that's that you've got to learn how to color inside the lines before you know when it's appropriate to stray from that. So before you get too creative, make sure you know what the rules are and that you're following them as much as you can, and then when you go outside of that, It's purposeful. Sometimes we do speak in the passive voice, but when we do... It's for a purpose.
0: Right. We, we we know that we're doing it. We do it for a reason.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't want to be doing those things without even knowing that you're doing them. You want to have that awareness, which comes from the science, which comes from the study, of making sure that you've perfected your writing skills as much as you can. And again, we're all learning all the time. But you want to always strive to have that understanding and that awareness of um, how writing works and what the rules are of you know, grammar and good writing and concise writing.
0: Are there any particular authors, you know, legal or otherwise, that whose writing style you, you try to emulate or that you take as a, as a guide?
1: That's a tough question for me in terms of choosing one person. I have been a student of everyone's work I've ever read. Um, you know, whether it's my opposing counsel, whether it's attorneys I've worked with, trial counsel I've worked with, judges who've written opinions, I fiction authors, nonfiction authors. I mean, I, I'm constantly learning, and so I take bits and pieces um, from everyone I read to continue to improve my own. And, and for me, that process of improvement is rather than an emulation of something in particular, it's more of a letting out my creative outlet Um, and, you know, using... I I do have usually in most briefs a point where I indulge in waxing a little bit poetic and I, you know, try to make sure, again, that I'm... When I go outside the lines, I'm doing it on purpose and I know that I'm doing it Um, because, you know, we're so used to seeing kind of that methodical sort of writing. But I'm a big believer in... At some point in your argument, you need to find that part that gets you going, that part that makes you feel like the advocate that you are for your client. And and we're all here as attorneys to be advocates for justice. And so you have to find that part of your case. And and when I find that part, usually there's a, a point in my brief where I try to draw some kind of visualization, some kind of element that, makes you think about it a different way, that makes you really realize the wrong that needs to be righted here, assuming that I'm the appellant and, of course, if I'm the appellee, the right that was right all along.
0: That's what I tell people about writing, especially when you're writing for the appellant, when you're trying to obtain a reversal. And what I try and explain to clients is not only, you know, when you're an appellant, the odds are, you know, roughly 80-20 against you. You not only need to have a solid legal argument, but you need to have something that gets the court's attention that makes them want to rule in your favor. Because just just being right is tough. When you're in a sea of briefs and the presumption is that most of them are going to get affirmed, there has to be some nugget that makes them want to rule in your favor, want to, to write an opinion as opposed to issuing a PCA. Do you, do you always know what that is before you start writing? Or does it come to you sometimes in the process? Because I find sometimes sometimes it comes to me or it changes when I'm writing. How does that work for you?
1: Yeah, that can certainly happen. It typically comes to me rather early on in the process. Sometimes, especially if I've been involved um, before the appeal in post-trial motions or something like that, because we, you know, we do assist trial attorneys in that process um, and also in dispositive motions and things like that. So sometimes... I will get involved at that stage, and it will come to me then, um, especially if I'm going to be arguing the issue on, say, summary judgment or post-trial motions. I've already gone through that process in my head typically where I have honed in on what the problem is here or the injustice is here that I want to address with the court and get them to see it from that perspective um, but but in the writing process, it certainly can change, especially because something like that, where you're drawing this other analogy or whatever it might be, can feed into your structure of your argument. And so sometimes as you're structuring your argument, things will come to you.
0: And what about, do you generally have some some overarching theme that you keep coming back to? Do you have... How how do you structure, ideally, if you have enough to work with, is there a particular way you like to structure your arguments?
1: Well, I definitely like to make sure that everything ties together and that everything flows. And so there's nothing, I think, that's worse for a reader than a disjointed or, worse, overlapping, repetitive argument. So um, structure is going to vary from case to case, and it's going to depend on a lot of things, including the strength of your argument, the standard of review. But overall, you want to make sure you're structuring it in the best way to communicate it to your audience so that they can digest it, so that it's easy for them to understand. If it's hard for them to understand why the trial court did something wrong or even why the trial court did something right, that's not good for you. You want the appellate court to see your argument as the easy route through this maze that is the law on your issue.
0: The way I explain it sometimes to to students, because I I used to teach legal research and writing, Uh, the way I explain it is it's like a math problem, which, right, as a math major, uh, it's like a math problem. You have to show your work. You have to show each step of the reasoning to get the court to where you want to go. And even it may seem like you're going too far back, but you need to start at the beginning and show each step because that's what makes something persuasive.
1: And that's where, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have wonderful colleagues at my firm. And we often will look at each other's work, and it's so helpful to have. You, you try to do that yourself, um, but if you have the luxury of having a new set of eyes, on that brief or on a part of that brief, um, it can be really helpful because inevitably there are things that you have skipped over. So when you're talking about that step by step by step, you might miss a step because you think it's assumed or you think everyone everyone would understand that. But not everyone lived the case the way that you did. Um, even going through the record. You've now, as the appellate lawyer, gone through the entire record on appeal. Someone might pick up that brief and not have the benefit of all of that from the get-go. So it's your job to make sure that no matter what type of eyes are picking up that brief, that they will get it.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that. What type of collaborative environment do you have at your firm? Are there How many other appellate lawyers do you work with? and And... Do you normally write a brief from start to finish yourself, or do you do it in in pieces with other people?
1: I typically, and and most of us, we typically write our briefs start to finish. But in in some particularly larger cases or, you know, even if it's just it doesn't have to be a larger case. It can be any case where you just want that second set of eyes. You know, we all, um, speaking to the appellate geekdom, we all love this. We all that's the fun part. The fun part is the wordsmithing part. The fun part is, well, what if we pitch it this way instead of this way? What if we change the angle? That's where things get really interesting and really fun for us.
0: Definitely. If if you'll do all the record review, I'll I'll wordsmith all day, right?
1: <laughs> yes, precisely. If if anybody has that gig, Dwayne and I are here and we are signing up all day long. Definitely. How do you
0: feel about brief length? Is there, and obviously it depends a lot on circumstances and client demands and all sorts of things, but, but in the ideal world, what brief length would you like to write?
1: So, of course, that depends on the scope of the issues. If it's a discrete legal issue, i love to see it in the 20-page range. Um, It can get in the 30-page range. And when I say that, I mean 30, not Mm -hmm. 35, 36. Um, You know, of course, we've all had those briefs that go. I mean, I've never felt like I needed to chop out words to get to a page limit. But, um, you know, we've all had those briefs that get a little longer than that. But if you can't say it that quickly, chances are someone's not going to pick it up that quickly and agree with you. So you've got to have your elevator speech down. You've got to have a brief that's really well organized. What happens sometimes is you have separate sections of a brief, and and I've seen briefs where that can be a little bit haphazard, where if you really took a step back, you would reorganize it and, and make it a little more succinct. So even within the issues and the sections themselves, you need to organize. So not just the text and the writing, but also the actual headings and and parse it all out. Because to the extent you've got overlap, somebody's going to read that, they're going to think, well, I've already figured this part out back in 1A and not delve into perhaps a very discrete issue you're addressing in this part, but you've kind of muddied the waters by blending the issues and being repetitive and reciting case law you've already talked about. So really it's a process kind of like math where we do that um, process where you kind of factor out a number and pull it outside the equation and you reduce down to the most simple equation that you can can get. That's very similar to me to the process of brief writing. If you've got extra fluff in there and you can cut it all out and just really get it down to its bare bones – That's what you want to do. And so sometimes the writing process can start larger, go down, and then puff back up just a little bit as you refine things and kind of build it back up. But I I have a process that sometimes resembles that, where it can start out longer, and that's not the best work. That's an initial draft. And then you get down to the bare bones, and then you build it back up a little bit to make it flow.
0: It's, what's the Mark Twain quote that if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter, right? It,
1: exactly. It takes
0: time to distill things down to the most important bits, for sure.
1: It really does, and that can be hard for some people to understand, I think, because particularly if you've spent more time on it, someone might think um, that that means that it should be longer, so we sometimes associate effort with length, and that is not reflective, especially in appellate writing.
0: No, I agree with that. And I think that clients probably don't understand that to some degree either, that it's it really it is it's in a large part easier and faster to write a 30-page brief than a 20-page brief because it, there's a little less culling of the ideas and, and sharpening of the focus. You and I, I think, are the same in that we file most of our briefs in the second DCA. Is that right?
1: I I practice in all um, five of the, as I know you do, Dwayne, um, all five of the DCAs. But um, I would say it's kind of evenly split, actually. Because really? we practice around the state, and we have offices around the state. And so we, we're, we're in all of the courts. So it's, it's actually a fairly even split for me.
0: Hmm. Well, so the lead into the question was I know we know that in the second district, the judges don't necessarily read our briefs in the way that we submit them. They might, but we also know that the court staff prepares compilation briefs where they pick apart the pieces and put them together in a different format so that they match up various parts of the appellant's brief and the appellee's brief. And so we never really know for sure if the judges are looking at the briefs in the way that we intended them to look at them. Uh, but I have a, a confession to make, which is I spend uh, an inordinate amount of time making sure that my brief looks good as written. You know that the PDF has the proper white space and and all that sort of thing, and I, it drives my assistant crazy sometimes. We'll get to the point where we've you know already created the PDF to upload to the court, and I see that a period's in the wrong place or whatever, and we start all over again. Are you with me on that? Is that? Are you concerned about what your brief looks like?
1: I'm with you. When you said the period is in the wrong place, I had a little panic attack over here <laughs> for you. I, I know that feeling. We all hate that feeling, um, and that's, again, part of our appellate geekdom. But, yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, there are still some judges who, despite that process, like to review the briefs as a whole. But that's not the only reason. This brief also goes to your client. This brief goes to your opposing counsel. And this brief is out there, available to the world in most cases. And you just want to put your best work out there. You want it to be your best looking work. And you know the way it looks is in that PDF document. So you want that PDF document to look right. So I always try to look at that final file before the actual file, the PDF file that will be filed with the court, just to make sure that nothing untoward has happened with a period.
0: Sometimes I look at briefs that I'm getting from other lawyers, and I'm sure nobody who's listening to this podcast so they won't be offended, but sometimes I look at them and wonder, how did that brief get out the door quite like that? You know, well, <laughs> it's very and- disturbing when I see, oh, well, you know, that heading isn't really centered or...
1: (laughs) Well, and even worse, you know, in this day and age with all of our abilities to work on electronic documents, I'm sure we've all seen stuff filed with track changes, comments and things like that, and you just feel so bad for someone who, you know, didn't see that slip through, and I can completely see how it happens. You know, sometimes I'll have placeholders, I try to make them very obvious to myself in the editing process, so if I need a record site... I'll leave a big blank. Sometimes I'll highlight it yellow because that's not getting past me, right, when I review the document before it gets filed. But, um, but you know, it's tricky, and, and we're all so incredibly busy, and we sometimes don't get all the time that we need and certainly not all the time that we would like because I know we've all been in that position as appellate lawyers where you wish you could just have one more week, to perfect it and perfect it even more because it's the love of the craft. We love writing and we want to write something that looks great. And so, um, you know, when you have that extra time to indulge in that last set of revisions, that is the best feeling.
0: And electronic filing is part of the problem, too, right? Because in the old days, which were not that long ago, we'd print out. A copy, and you knew exactly what the brief looked like. That was sliding into the envelope that was being hand delivered to the court, or mailed to the court, or whatever the case may be. Now there's a certain element of trust, right? That the PDF that we've up, uh, that uploaded uh, to the portal is looks like what we think it looks like. Uh, it's always causes me a little bit of stress too.
1: <laughs> well, and and you can always print it out and scan it, and and I. It's not the most efficient process, I don't think. And and especially with our requirements that it be word searchable and things like that, there is a way to build that back in once you scan it. Um, And and there are some advantages of scanning, too, because you don't have to worry about things like metadata. But, um, you know, I know that we typically do use that conversion process. And that conversion process does not always work perfectly. So it really does make sense before you upload that. Um, and then, as you said, even in the process of uploading, who knows, there's that element of trust that we we have to all vest the filing portals with.
0: For sure. Now, in the CLEs that you and I see a lot, there's been a lot of topics in the last year or two about the effect of electronic filing and, and specifically electronic reading uh, on on us, right? The fact that judges are more often than not, reading on screens, whether it be an iPad or a computer, instead of reading on paper. And there's a lot of science to, you know, how do you format documents differently and set them up differently to, to make it easier to read in that type of format. Have you taken some of that to heart? Have you changed your, your style at all to reflect the fact that judges are reading electronically?
1: Well, I do pay attention to white space. Um, I know that there are some patterns that are talked about a lot in you know, in like that F pattern, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I haven't implemented that so much, but but I do pay attention to white space. I try to break things up. You know the my my biggest pet peeve would be that page-long paragraph. If you ever see, you know, a brief that has a page-long paragraph, those are the worst and just impossible to read. I mean, really, whether paper or on a device. So I, I do pay attention to those things, being mindful. But I think the PDF is a pretty good exemplar, and I think if you feel comfortable with the way your PDF looks, there's only so much reading into the tea leaves that that we can all do. And if that PDF looks good and readable and is broken up and in, in, in terms of paragraphs and in terms of headings, um, which are really important, you know, again, you don't want to go pages and pages without a heading. You want to give some guideposts to the reader. So. I do pay attention to those things. But that really applies both with written product, you know, where they're reviewing a hard copy or reviewing it on a device.
0: I'm curious, do you use any footnotes in your briefs?
1: Um, Almost never. I try not to. You know, we've a lot of us have been told, um, and and I don't know if it's still the case, but in that process of creating that master document where um, briefs are put together, Sometimes footnotes can be lost or, you know, misplaced. Um, So, you know, you don't want to go looking for your footnote in a lost and found and find it in the wrong place, but um, footnotes... Or, Or I've heard
0: them say, too, that the staff will take the footnote and essentially just put it up in the text where... It could have been anyway had it not been dropped to a footnote, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and so that's what I always try to do. So if I have the inclination to drop a footnote, then I first ask myself if it's if my inclination is to make it a footnote, is it really necessary anyway? And if it is, does it go right where I was about to drop the footnote and maybe just, you know, devote that space to it and then start the next paragraph? Um, so I, I try to incorporate it back in if I can. But, I again, in that um, interest of making sure you know what the rules are, the rules are generally no footnotes. Sometimes you depart from that for a reason. Um, if it's pure context and you don't want to indicate to the court, for example, that you think it's relevant to an issue, but it's pure background, contextual, um, and you don't want to muck up that difference, Um that can be a very rare example to me, um, but again, very, very rare.
0: Me too, and I, I used to treat that differently, but I, I've had it pounded into me by so many people that the court doesn't like footnotes because I think footnotes have their place in certain types of writing. I, I use them very, very sparingly, I, and my rule is I don't put anything in a footnote that I wouldn't care if the court doesn't read. Mm-hmm. Right. If it's something that's there that might be of interest or maybe the client really wants in the brief but disrupts the flow of the thought and I really ultimately doesn't matter to me if somebody overlooks it, then maybe that's the appropriate thing for a footnote, but certainly try to avoid them.
1: That has to be a litmus test. You have to be okay with somebody not reading it.
0: Right. Now, the other side of communication is oral argument. Uh, once, the, once the briefs are done in the right cases, and seems like now at least – Uh, In the second DCA, maybe more and more cases, uh, we have this opportunity for oral argument. uh, Is oral argument something that that you love? Is it something that you you just do, Uh, or is it something that you'd rather not do?
1: Well, I I love oral argument at at the – I love the balance of what we do primarily day in, day out, and then that opportunity for a case that you've devoted all that time to, that you really understand inside and out, getting the opportunity to advocate – um, in that forum is, is a special opportunity that, you know, we're, we're lucky in the second DCA that we do get that opportunity um, usually when we ask for it in, in your typical final order appeal. So, um, so yeah, I, I do. I, I enjoy it. I, again, always look for that part of my case, and that's where I start, where I feel the injustice of something that's happened or, you know, the appellee, the justice of it. And um, that's kind of where I start and I make sure my whole argument is consistent with that because I think it's really important to believe in your position and to really incorporate and digest and um, wrap your head around it. Because if you don't and if, if it doesn't all gel for you, it gets tough to answer some of those questions sometimes. It really has to all make sense to you on almost a whole different level when you go to oral argument because it's very easy to sit behind a desk and to make sure that something all sounds right. But when you need to talk about it, you really have to believe it. You really have to understand it on a whole other level.
0: Do you ever have circumstances where you're handling an appeal but the the lawyer who handled the case in the trial court would like to do the oral argument, does that ever come up in your practice?
1: On my side or on the other side? On your side. On my side. You know, I don't think that I have had, I don't think I've had that experience that I can recall. Um, Typically, certainly in the briefing process, trial lawyers are amazing at what they do, at being on their feet in the trial court. But by and large, the appellate process, they're happy to cede that over (laughs) to the appellate lawyer. And while one might think, well, oral argument isn't that kind of like a hearing, it's really just your brief on steroids. I mean, you go in, again, in that closed world universe because at oral argument, in our appeal, in our briefs, we're not at liberty to go outside the record. We're not at liberty to bring up something new. Well, I just got this discovery, and this is what this person said. We can't do that. So during oral argument, um, you are bound by those same strictures that trial lawyers aren't necessarily used to. And, um, you know, that's, that's a skill and a strength that we have as appellate advocates.
0: Yeah, I think you can definitely see the difference and, and understand why appellate specialists uh, can be very useful. When you watch an oral argument, you can see people who are really tuned in to what the appellate judges are thinking and what they want to hear as opposed to trial lawyers who, again, it's not to say anything bad about trial lawyers, but you and I and people like us, we spend a lot of time thinking about what appellate judges want to hear and, and speaking in the language that they are used to, standards of review and that sort of thing. And it is a different skill set. It can be hard to make that transition and not sound like you're arguing the summary judgment again instead of arguing the appeal.
1: Well, and if you think about it, too, in terms of communication, it's a more varied communication because in the trial court, you've got one member of that audience. That's your trial judge. And so a, a lot of times you've you know, built that rapport and you know how to speak to that trial judge. You know how they want to hear things. You know how they want to decide things. Um, but on appeal, it's different because you've got three judges. You've also got their law clerks. And anyone else who's, you know, involved in that process, it's that's typically the universe of it. And you don't want to put things in a way that's going to alienate anyone. And that's so beneficial to think about it from that perspective of speaking to these different audiences because that's what an appellate ruling should be. An appellate ruling should be not something that's really specific. It should be a one-size-fits-all because we're developing the law in Florida, and that has to apply to everybody, everywhere. That has to be a good fit for everyone. So you want to have an argument that applies no matter how you slice it. Those are the best arguments where you can take that question and you can say, well, here's how it makes sense in this scenario. In this scenario, this is why the law should be this way.
0: One of the things that I love about the, some of the technological advances with the court is the, the DCAs now are recording oral arguments. Uh, in a lot of cases, they're live streaming oral arguments. And so now I've found that, you know, with the idea that we learn from watching other people and seeing different styles, I find on oral argument days, if I'm not super busy, sometimes I'll tune into the second DCA and see who's arguing that morning and listen to the arguments and see who's on the panel uh, just to sign, kind of get a different perspective. Do, do you ever do that kind of stuff?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I love it when I have the opportunity to, to do that. It doesn't happen as often as I'd like. but.
0: <laughs> and, and now they're all uh, archived on the website, too. So if you hear somebody talking about an oral argument, you can kind of go back and watch it again. It's a great, uh, you know, we used to have to ask the marshal to put it on a DVD and mail it to us, and now they've made it so easy to become more of a student of oral argument. Uh, I think that will be great for great for us and great for law students and great for people who are trying to learn the practice is just to be able to watch some oral arguments.
1: And and it's also helpful if you have a case and you know that there was a similar case out there and perhaps you've already looked at the briefs and then there's a PCA really helpful to go back and be able to pull the oral argument from that case because you'll get some insight that you maybe didn't get from the briefings about some inclinations the judges might have had, some questions the judges might have had that might be outside what you would have seen in the briefing. So that's another great tool, another great use of those archived oral arguments.
0: So now I have a few questions for you that uh, we've sort of dubbed dubbed this the lightning round. I don't know if you've listened to episodes one or two, but uh, I have a couple questions just to elicit some responses from you and we'll see whether it leads to anything else i'm ready all right so oxford comma yes or no
1: is absolutely an acceptable response
0: (laughs) absolutely is the correct response okay Uh, one or two spaces after a period two two
1: that's the only response
0: (laughs) i agree with that too um case names underline or italics italics yeah i don't know why anyone underlines
1: Well, I mean, I I think that italics really... One of the benefits that um, I remember someone said in law school is that you've got that period at the end. And a lot of times with underlines, it drives me crazy when I see underlines. And sometimes it's under the period, sometimes it's not. I always try to make sure my italicized periods are correct, but it blends a little bit better. The underline is just a little jarring to the eye for me. And, And back on the Oxford comma issue... Um, too. I I just think for legal writing, a lot of these rules really apply to me for legal writing. I know that the world is going in the direction of one space. I get that. (laughs) But for legal writing, because we have these um, citations throughout our briefs, and again, perhaps this is even more geared toward appellate writing, but I think it's important to have that pause because otherwise it just all runs together and to me makes it harder to read, particularly in the legal context.
0: Well, and let me go back to the one versus two spaces for a minute. You know, I realize that people who are against two spaces say that that's an anachronism, that it's a holdover from typing and from letter-setting presses and that sort of thing. But to me, the whole purpose between two spaces is to create some white space. And now, I don't know if you do this. Like, if I have a, a sentence that ends with a period and then has a citation, I will put one space between that period and the start of the citation, the citation, which will end with a period, and then two spaces before the next substantive sentence. So what that does to me, I like the fact that it ties that citation into the sentence that went before by keeping it a little bit closer, but then sp- but then putting in some additional space between the next sentence.
1: That is an incredibly thoughtful spacing technique. I do that with uh, record sites. I, I, I think there, there are some things that I will do that with, but that as a rule is is kind of what I'm what I'm saying about the two spaces all together with the legal citations is you need that breath in between to understand that we're not starting a new sentence just yet. But, um, but, no, that's, that's very thoughtful. And, and, again, talk about coloring outside the lines and knowing when you're doing it and doing it for a reason. Um, I think that's, it's great when we get to craft our briefs in a way that we feel most clearly gets the point across.
0: I'm trying to remember when I started doing that, and it's been a long time, and I think that it might have been a convention at the Florida Law Review when I was an editor there and I just picked it up there. But, but I love it because otherwise when you get to the end of a sentence, the next italicized word, it might be, it's a case, you know it's a case name, but it might be a case that is starting the next sentence, or it might be a citation of the sentence you just finished.
1: Yeah, no, I, I really like that.
0: What about Westlaw or Lexis?
1: So I've pretty much, the bulk of my career, have used Westlaw. So I think with this, you know, the answer to this question is whatever you use day in, day out, you're going to be very predisposed to and um, a lot of us have been through a period where we've had to switch, and that's a very jarring experience. I've always thought that the Westlaw platform was very intuitive and easy to use.
0: Yeah, I like it too, and and part of it originally, you know, I don't know when you when I was in law school uh, at UF, uh, they gave half the class. Uh, Westlaw passwords and half the class Lexus passwords, and I'm sure to keep some sort of detente between the two two companies. And so people immediately formed, you know, preferences. Uh, but then I find the law firm has switched back and forth a few times to get better deals, and so you have to deal with it. But what I will say is that the currently we're using Westlaw, the Westlaw Next web interface is fantastic. I just, I love it. I love the way it works. I love the way it works on the iPad um it's just it seems to work pretty well for me and 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 lexus was good too and if we had to switch back we could but uh it is jarring to switch around a little bit
1: as long as i can use boolean searches i'm a happy camper (laughs) i love boolean searches
0: yes what about iphone or android iphone yeah do you use an ipad too
1: I don't, but I would like to be able to use one more. It's just, uh, but I I pretty much can do anything on my iPhone.
0: It is pretty amazing, the Mm -hmm. the computers that we have in our pockets. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. what about for pleasure reading? Do you prefer to read uh, paper, like a hardback or a a paperback, or read on a Kindle?
1: I read on my phone. Do you? Yeah. Do you use the Kindle app? I sometimes use the Kindle app. I, I use a variety of apps, including one that's um, from the library. So I'll get books from the library through the app. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I You know, I like books, and I like the feel of books, but I just like reading electronically.
1: I'm in the same boat. I hear people who say, oh, I'll never, you know, it's not the same, and I'll never get used to that electronic interface. But I think, like you've said, the convenience of it. You can't, I can't get past that because I could be anywhere and I might want to read a couple pages of that book I'm in the middle of. And in if the I elevator
0: on the way down or whatever, yeah. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps.
1: That's how life goes sometimes. You just, you know, get get in what you can when you can.
0: So Sarah, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: So you can reach me, uh, you can find me pretty easily on the, uh, on the internet. And I think this has been true for your guests, um, the majority of your guests so far, that we all have pretty unique last names. That's true. And we're all two spacers, and we're all into the Oxford comma. Yeah. So I see a pattern building here, and we may see, be forming. See, I have forming. to keep
0: asking the questions, because I'm waiting for somebody to, to, to be a contrarian, so then we can explore why they do it wrong.
1: I think we know who those contrarians are, and I can help you identify them. <laughs> it's a very controversial topic, the, uh, the two spaces in our profession. Um, so by, you can reach me by email at slahlou at bankerlopez.com um, or look me up, LinkedIn, Twitter, I am easy to find and very accessible. If uh, you know anybody is interested in the appellate practice section and wants to get involved, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Anybody's interested in pro bono work and, and lots of opportunities there. Um, I love to talk to folks about that as well. Lots of opportunities for everyone for every interest.
0: Where they can come up and introduce themselves to you at the Florida Bar meeting, right, which will be in just a couple months.
1: That's right, that's right. Please do come one, come all. It's the best way to start getting involved.
0: Sarah, thanks so much for for coming and being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that uh, I will have you back again sometime in the future.
1: Thank you, Dwayne. This has been a pleasure.
0: All right. Thanks to Sarah Lalu Amin for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, as always, podcasts are not legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, please feel free to contact me and I'll try to help you out. You can always contact me through the show's Twitter account at Issues on Appeal or through my email ddyker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes that are available in your podcast player. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions on the show. If there's somebody that you want to hear from, if there's a topic you want me to cover, or you just want to let me know that you're listening, send me an email or a Twitter DM. I really appreciate it. Also, if you like the show, please consider rating it on iTunes. iTunes is the main directory for podcasts. Rating the show highly in iTunes helps people to discover the show as long as you rate it high. So four or five stars would be great. Most of all, I want you to keep listening and be a part of the show. The next episode, episode four, is going to be a little bit different and is going to cover my recent visit to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I hope you will download and listen. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.